morning, Baby Church. Joyful that you guys can come and worship with us today. If you can please stand. Say, and my song will be the same. 
call to worship this morning. It's from John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. Church, there is power in the name of Jesus. This passage in the book of John is written towards the end of the book, so even as John was finishing up his account of Jesus' life, this account was filled with miracles on miracles, from healing the blind to walking on water to ultimately defeating death. Even after writing about all these things, John states that there are untold stories of his power. Church, as we continue to worship today, I want us to dwell on the thought that we worship a God of unimaginable power. He is omnipotent, he's all-powerful. He has the power to heal. He's the power to transform not only your own life, but also the lives of your families, your friends, your classmates, coworkers. Let's lift up this time of worship to him. Let's pray. Dear God, we praise you for your great power. Lord, I pray that you will continue to be magnified in our lives so that others around us may be witness of this power. Lord, we ask for your blessing on our worship service today. May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name. Jesus in the streets. 
hearts. Jesus in the darkness over every enemy. Jesus for my family, and I speak the holy name. Jesus. Amen. Stand again. Shout Jesus from the mountains. Jesus in the streets. Jesus in the darkness over every enemy. Jesus for my family, and I speak the holy name, Jesus. Shout Jesus from the mountains, and Jesus in the streets, and Jesus in the darkness over Lost. You knew the great and terrible cost 
But Jesus, your face was set I worked my fingers down to the bone But nothing I did could ever atone But Jesus, you paid my debt By your blood I have redemption and salvation Lord, you died that I might reap what you have sown And you rose that I might be a new creation I am born again by grace and grace alone I was in darkness all of my life I never knew the day from the night But Spirit, you made me see I swore I knew the way on my own Head full of rocks, a heart made of stone But Spirit, you moved in me And at your touch, my sleeping spirit was awakened On my darkened heart, the light of Christ has shown Caught into a kingdom that cannot be shaken Heaven's citizen by grace and grace alone So I'll stand in faith by grace and grace alone I will run the race by grace and grace alone I will slay my sin by grace and grace alone We will reach the end by grace and grace alone Amen Amen, y'all may be seated I think God's inspired the worship team, don't you? Let's hear it for him again Big round of applause Thank you everybody so, Nesor Ranim, Magandang Umaga, I got a few of those. How about this one, Half a Day? All right, good morning, and thank you for attending Bayview Church. My name is Steve, and it's my privilege and blessing to serve you as one of your elders at this church. I want to tell you about a few things that we have happening, but before we do that, first, I want to say hello to all of those who are watching us on Facebook live stream. We do that every Sunday, so the second service is available to you as it happens on Facebook. Obviously, we prefer that you can join us here in person, but if you can't, that's available to you. Plus, older sermons back in the archive are available to you on our hub page, uh, which is our internal website. It has a lot of information about what is going on at Bayview Church. Second, if you are new, if this is your first time attending the church or you've never signed in before, uh, please come, if I didn't catch you on the way in, please come see me at the end of the service and I would be happy to add you to our database and then we'll start to communicate with you, which we do primarily via email as a medium we mostly use uh, for communication with people who come to the church. Now with that, there's a few things going on and if I get the first slide, next Sunday, we're going to be doing our water baptism. We had the class this morning. However, if you or somebody you know would like to get baptized next Sunday, come see me after service or contact me via either email or social media. I'd be happy to 
get you connected with that, fill out, there's one form to fill out and there's a little bit of information we need to pass on. So if you didn't get to the class, it's not a lot that we have to tell you or share with you about that, just some of the basic philosophy that we hold towards the covenant or the uh, ordinance of, of baptism. Uh, if not, and you wanna just see it, we will invite you please to come out next Sunday. We do those, not in a little pool, not in a little kiddie pool, not in a big baptism bathtub, but we do it right there in God's great ocean. And it's right down the cliff from, from the church. You can't miss it, it'll be right after second service. We'll go down there, bring the whole student body, everybody down there. And if you wanna celebrate this great event in these people's lives with them, please come out and join us uh, next, next Sunday. If you're not quite there or you don't know, then next quarter we'll be teaching the class again. We teach the membership and baptism classes in the first month of every quarter. Next slide. Another thing that we do that's fantastic, particularly for the younger, younger children, is Vacation Bible School. We're doing it earlier this year. We're doing it in June. It's a whole week. It's at night, so you can work and then bring the kiddos at night and kind of have maybe date night, <laughs> drop the kids off, go out to eat, or do, go, well, people don't go to movies, I guess. Go home and watch a movie. I don't know. Whatever it is you do together, you can go do what you do together while your kids are having fun here. And it's a fantastic event. Uh, Jessica Jones Madrid does a fabulous job of building out this with volunteers and people in costume, and it's just really, really great. The kids love it, the parents love it. We do need volunteers. We had a meeting this morning, uh, volunteer interest, it's already done, but that doesn't preclude you from volunteering. So if you are interested, again, you can contact me, one of the staff, you can go on the hub, you can say, I wanna volunteer. There's a question in there. If you choose children's ministry, do you wanna do VBS? And so you'll have that opportunity to volunteer as well to, to help us out. Uh, with that. Uh, next slide. There is a National Day of Prayer on, the, on May the 4th. There's an actual event associated with it. It's free, open to the public. It's at Life in the Sun Christian Church, which is off Marine Corps Drive. If you know where Megabyte is, that like, building like, looks like something out of like 1962 Disneyland. Sorry, do you own that? Anybody in here own that? I should have asked this first. Anybody own that business in here? Okay, okay, good. Yeah, the one that looks like 1962 Disneyland. It's blue, isn't it blue? I don't know, it was blue. But back behind that, behind Rexall in that area over there is uh, Life in the Sun. Okay, next slide. We also have a robust women's ministry program here at Bayview Church. If you are not part of that, there's about 100 women who are on that list. We'd be happy to get you signed up. They are having an event, it's a breakfast fellowship. It's on May the 6th, which is a Saturday morning, so you can leave the kids with dad. Uh, from 9 to 11, you can hit the QR code there to sign up, or you can go on hub.bayviewguam.com to sign up, or on the Church Center app, which I told some of you about. So with that, if you will uh, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're blessed to be here this morning. We're blessed to be able to worship you in a free country with freedom of religion and the opportunity to praise God in all your glory without any fear of repercussion or concern. Uh, Lord, we're grateful for this congregation, for people to come out and give up the time to come here and enjoy uh, the spirit and enjoy your word. We pray for Pastor Kevin that he's inspired to be the proper vessel to deliver that word this morning. Uh, Lord, we're grateful for him. We're grateful for everybody here. We pray for everybody's physical, mental, spiritual well-being. We pray also that they 
uh, soften their hearts and open their minds to hear your word. We do these things in the name of your heavenly son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Galatians. We've been going through this letter that Paul wrote. This week I was having coffee with some Christian brothers, and uh, one of them asked me the question. They said, you know, Pastor, I've been listening to the series, and there's such an emphasis on, on um, justification by faith, and you're emphasizing faith, and it's like the rules, don't try to do it by the rules. And then the question came up, well, what about, you know, what do we do with the, with the Ten Commandments? What do we do with the rules? And uh, this is the, the sermon where Paul's going to talk about that. In fact, uh, the way that I would frame it is, what is my relationship as a Christian to God's law? Because Paul has been deconstructing the idea that you're trying to keep the rules in such a way that you feel like you're in a better position before God. That now, as he's writing this letter, he's going to address that. And I wonder if Paul was, was, as he's writing this letter, they're probably thinking about that. They're probably like, well, then what about the Ten Commandments? What about the rules? What about the law? And he's going to deal with it today. So I titled the message, The Guardian, that's a word that's going to come at the end of the text that I'm going to read through. As I read through this, listen how many times the word promise is used. And then the connection I'll give you right now, which is the heart of the sermon, is that the law is a guardian over the promise that God has given us. So let's read the text of Scripture, Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. It's kind of long and technical, so just Follow with me as we read through it. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you were all sons of God through faith. Now, as I read through that, I imagine some of you get lost 
because even I, as I read it, it's very technical. But we're going to break it down. There's three points, and we're going to really try to draw out from it what Paul is talking about in answering the question, what is my relationship as a Christian to the law now that I'm justified by faith? And here's the first point. Paul's going to come out of the gate giving us everything the law is not. And my first point I entitled, The Unbreakable Promise of God. The Unbreakable Promise of God. And as he starts, he gives us an illustration. He says, to give a human example. And he's going to talk about man-made covenant. So his illustration comes out of our world, where we make Covenants. Now, what is a covenant? Whenever I do a wedding, I emphasize that fact. It's two people coming together and they're covenanting one to another. They're making promises. There's vows that are being made and there's witnesses, everyone in the room. And then there's a piece of paper and we sign it. And then I sign it as the minister and each one and there's witnesses. And then the paper gets sent and it's, it's seen as legal now and they are joined together, right? That is a covenant. Now, there are other kinds of covenants, and there's other ways in which you might ratify or certify or make legal different kinds of covenants and agreements. And here, he's taking that out of our world and using it as an illustration. And here's what I have. Human contracts are binding. This word covenant that he used, the atheke, is that kind of binding agreement between two people. And as you walk through these verses, you're going to see that he's just going to unfold it a little bit. And I'm going to give you little pieces of this because it is very technical. But in verse 16, he's talking about the different parties that are involved. You need to clarify who is involved. Verse 16, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And that's what he leads into there. If it's a wedding, we all know who it's between because it's two people that have come and we're all witnessing that they're covenant to one another. But there are all kinds of, there's real estate agreements, there's business agreements. You buy a car, you go and you sit down, there's a piece of paper, but you better clarify who is this between? Who's buying the car? And, and is there a loan? Because then we need to know promise of payment over time. There's, there's a clarifying of who is it between? And as he walks through this, not only that, but in verse 17, remember the illustration is covenants. In verse 17, he says, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. And in this point, he's saying that despite the time that has passed, there is no change in the promise. The illustration I read about was if you have... Here's another kind of, of agreement or covenant is, could be a will where somebody says, I'm going to promise in my will how I'm going to divide up my assets and who gets them. And you might have a situation where a parent says, I got two children and this child has done really well in life and, and is, is wealthy and this child has struggled and, and is hardly making ends meet. And the way I'm going to divide up my assets is I'm going to give more of my assets to this child because they need it, because they need help. And so they put together and construct their will this way. And then when the time comes when the parent passes away, and then 
they have the funeral and they go through this process and then they got to come together to read the will to see how it's going to unfold. And in that in-between, the rich child suddenly is poverty-stricken. All the wealth somehow just gone. And then they show up and they say, look, the situation has changed. Now I need more money than what the will. We've read it. That's not fair now. And Paul's point is to say that changing circumstances do not void what has already been made. What was made? A promise is made between God and Abraham 430 years past, and now God comes and he makes promises to Abraham, I mean to Moses. And what he does with Moses 430 years later does not void the promise that he made. That's the point he's going to make. In covenants, they're binding going forward despite the fact that sometimes situations change. And then in verse 18, because the point he's making, the law of Moses cannot turn God's promise to Abraham into something other than that what it is, which is a promise. It's a promise. But in verse 18, he goes on to say this. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. And I used this word last week. I'm going to use it again. And this is the, the, the principle of mutual exclusivity. You either achieve it and get it because it was promised to you and based only on the promise or you get it because you're earning it somehow. It's as if the situation of inheritance, you might have a person who says, you know what, I'm getting kind of old and decrepit, and I need help. I can hardly move around the house. I need help cleaning. I need someone to cook some meals for me. I tell you what, I'm going to give you part of my inheritance, but you have to come in and help me here in the latter part of my life. You move into the house, you help me out in these ways I need, and I'm going to give you a part of my inheritance. You see, there's a performance in that situation. You come in and you perform and then the inheritance is given to you. But that is not what God did with Abraham. There's not a performance at stake in order for him to get the blessing. It's based only on the promise. And that's the point he makes finally here as he's talking about the unbreakable promise of God. That it's exclusive Mutually exclusive two ways to get the blessing, to get the inheritance. You either perform and get it, or it's a promise. And you can't mix it. And that leads me to the last point here on the unbreakable promise of God, which is to tell you about how divine promises are unbreakable, irrevocable, unalterable. God makes a promise based upon who he is, it cannot be thwarted or broken. And it reminded me of a time where, this wasn't that long ago, where there was a relative on my, my wife's side, actually a relative that passed away and left in the will, children, inheritance. But somehow, my wife, who's not one of the children, is a relative, but not one of the children, is in the will. How did that happen? Because she was loved. 
They just loved my wife. In the first service, I made this mistake because I used this expression like, I don't know how she did that. I know how. I'm going to make it because my wife's awesome. See, clarify that in the second service. She loved my wife. She put her in the will. But yet, we were thwarted. We never received it. The per- there was a person who thought, that's not fair. They're not in close proximity like us. And we never saw the money. And then there was questions like, well, that doesn't seem right. Well, what should we do? Well, by the time you spent the money and went over there to try to figure out and did all these things, you would have spent more than what was actually going to be given. So it's like it just got tossed up in the air. Oh, well. <laughs> you know? And this is what I'm saying is that was thwarted. But the promise of blessing and inheritance that God makes with Abraham cannot be thwarted. It's unbreakable. Let me just explain to you a little bit about what happened. I put up there Genesis 15. I'm not going to go back and read through the whole thing. I'm going to tell you about it. You can read it later if you want to. But Abraham comes to God and he's essentially saying, look, you've blessed me. I've got all this that I could give away. I've got some wealth here, but I have no child. I have no heir. I'm going to end up, in fact, this is what he says to God. I'm going to end up giving it to like a different relative that's not even close proximity, like a cousin or I can't remember who it is, but it's not, he has no son, no one to to pass on inheritance to. And then God says to him, you are going to have a son. And in Genesis 15, there is a covenant that he makes with him. Now, let me tell you how they made covenants in this time period. We don't do it like this now. It's a good thing probably. But this is how they did it. God says to Abraham, I want you to go get five animals, cow, goat, ram, a couple birds. You're going to come, cut them in two, lay them out in a line, one half there, one half there, one half here, one half there. And then this is how they made the covenant binding. The two people entering into the covenant agreement would walk together between the animals making the promise to each other, whatever it was, and then what was said was this. If I break my promise to you, do to me, you have the right to do to me what we've done to these animals. That's how serious and binding it was. Now, we don't do it that way, right? You know, it's like, I'm buying a car. I'm going to pay it. Look, do to me. I'm not buying that car. (laughs) It's not worth it, right? But this is, this is what was done back then. Now, when I went through my, some of my grad work, one of the papers I wrote was on eschatology. And I actually went all the way back to Genesis to lay some foundation for going forward because the promises that are made are going to be kept and you see them fulfilled towards the end of the Bible. So I went back and studied promises and I studied treaties. That's why I put up there, I think I got, these were, Two examples of treaties, the kinds of treaties that were made back in that day. One was called a Caesarean vassal treaty. But this treaty I'm describing to you is a royal grant treaty. It's it's like a, a king that is giving something and it's only based on them. It's a different kind of treaty than the other one where it's quid pro quo, however you say that, right? But... In this case, it's based on a king who lives in heaven. You can't break it. 
There's no relative who can thwart it. And do you know what happens? Just to emphasize that it's only based on God, a deep sleep comes over Abraham. And then he doesn't even walk between the animals. So God changes the way they do it. And as you read it, it's burning fire as God comes down and walks between the animals and saying, I am making the covenant to you based on who I am. Truth, omnipotent, all-knowing, holy, and righteous, and just, and the the attributes of who I am will be the foundation that this will come true. It will come to fruition. That is the unbreakable promise that God makes to Abraham. And here in verse 18, when he says this, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it's no longer comes by promise. So you can't say he made the promise to Abraham, but now for it to be fulfilled, I also have to follow the law. You can't do that. Then it's not based on the promise anymore. And that's the point that Paul makes right here. Paul is establishing that an offer which begins by grace as a free promise must continue to be made on the same basis or it stops being a promise. Now, he's going to deal with the question, then what do we do with the law? If you don't want us to add it in, do I have to follow it then? What place does it have now as a Christian that I I have put everything on faith? And he's going to deal with that. And it does get technical in here, but let me go through it. I asked the question, point two, what is the purpose then of the law? Because he says that. Verse 19, why then the law? He's the one saying it. Why then the law? In his answer, It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of sin. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now the intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. You kind of read that and you go, I can't make sense of that. Well, let me just simplify it. And I will say, well, the first thing I'll say is it's saying that there's one mediator that ratifies it, and that's God. And then it says, angels are involved in the giving of the law. We know that, but when you read Scripture, there's no explanation of the role that they played, which means I'm not going to say a lot about that. It would just be some guessing on that. But in this, he's giving us some simple points about why, why, what's the purpose of the law. One mediator came through angels, but total depravity of the world. And this is where he starts to really dig into it because he says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture, now listen to this, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Everything comes under sin because of the law. And what we learn and what Paul is saying, and I have said it before in the series, is that it has a ministry of condemnation. This word imprisoned, it means enclosed on all sides, like fish trapped in a net that's being pulled up out of the water. They just can't escape it. The law does that to us 
the sin that we commit, it places us in that net and we're in trouble. And Paul says everything is imprisoned. Everything is put in that net because of the law and our sin. And then we begin to say, well, and he addresses this, well, then does the law kind of work against, you know, the promise that was made? And he answers that because he says right here, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And he says, certainly not, which is really strong Greek language to really make sure he gets the point, to negate it, to negate that. Certainly not. John MacArthur says on this point, since God gave them both the law and the promise and doesn't work against himself, the law and the promise work in harmony. And that's what he's leading you to. He's going to show you how they work together in harmony for you. So, the law shows us our need for the free gift of salvation. And that's where he takes us to in verse 22. But, the, but after he says, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that, that means the purpose, the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, we see right now, okay, the unbreakable promise of God. He gave it to Abraham, can't break it. But then we have the law. What do we do with it? Somehow they're working together in harmony is what you're telling us. It's pointing us towards the need for salvation. And here's where we bring it together in the last point, which is this. Why do we have the law? What is my relationship as a Christian today to the law? And the answer is finding Christ's likeness through obeying the law. Now, at first glance, you go, wait a minute. It just seems like we're, we're going in a circle. So now we've got to obey it to, to be like Christ. But let's, let's unpack it. What, what else does he say here? And he goes on in the next couple verses. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So he talks about before faith, before we put faith in Christ and in the work on the cross and what he did. And what does he say? He's telling you something about what the law was for us before you became a believer in Christ. And there's two words that he uses, depending on the translations you're, you're reading. But one of them is that the law is a guard. In verse 23, it talks about being held prisoners. It's like being locked up. In the word there, it means that you're protected by military guards. Because in a sense, we, we can be imprisoned because, because we can't complete the law and we feel trapped by the sin. But he's using the word, the law is a guard like military guards around us. And then the second word that he uses is tutor. And depending on your translation, you might not have exactly that word. But the Greek word in there means tutor, to be taught something, to be instructed. It's under supervision. And in Paul's day when he was writing and used that word, uh, it would be a slave who supervised children on their parents' behalf. So let's just, as we unpack this, so what's my relationship to the law? He says to us as Christians, before faith, the law acted as 
both a guardian, it's guarding us somehow, and then secondly, it's a teacher. It's instructing us. Okay? All right? And what do we get from it? Verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And what I put here is two things unfold then. As we put our faith in Christ, what we've, we have the law restricts freedom because if it is a guard, if it is a teacher, then the relationship with it means it is restrictive. I mean, think about if you are under guard, you don't have absolute freedom to just go. They're keeping you somewhere. Now, how does the law do that? Well, the law is saying, don't go here. Don't do that. Don't, and there's a restrictiveness of the law. But now that we have faith, we're not under that, he says. We come out from underneath that. So now we have more freedom. Why? Because the law's true purpose is instructive. It's to teach us how to be like Christ. It points us to something beyond itself, to be something beyond just a standard, but to be a person. And Tim Keller says, just as a tutor seeks to prepare the children to live as adults, as free persons, that is what the law does to us. Imagine a prince who the king dies, and now he's going to become the king, but he's only five years old. What usually happens in that? situation. They take that young prince and they put guardians over them. They put tutors over him. All with the purpose of teaching them how to live like his father, the king that died. And the goal is not that their whole entire life that prince is going to have the tutors and the guardians over them. No. There comes a point where he, he matures and he steps into the role. He, he steps out of that role now and becomes the king. He becomes the man the king was. He's supposed to imbibe the values of his father and be a good ruler. And this is what the law does for us. It's over us in such a way that it's teaching us and instructing us so that one day we have greater freedom to be able to live in a way that we reflect Christ. In fact, I love what Tim Keller does because he compares salvation through the gospel in three ways to the opposite of what you get in every other religion of the world. See, in the gospel, you have freedom. You have freedom. Whereas in other religions of the world, or you could say non-gospel, right, religions, there's actually a sense of bondage because you're always working. You're always trying to achieve some type of standard. There's, there's right and wrong and and, you know, you have to earn your way by not doing the wrong and being moral and being holy. And, and so there isn't this freedom because you're in, you're in bondage to the standard, always trying to keep it. Now, in the gospel, it's personal. There's a relationship with a real person. And you're trying to become more like that person. Whereas over in non-gospel religions, it's impersonal. What motivates you? What motivates me as a Christian is that Christ came, loved me first, despite me being a sinner, died for me, took my place, brought me into his family, adopted me, gave me an inheritance. I am motivated by that. He gives me grace. It motivates me 
to be a gracious person. But in non-gospel religions, what you have is motivation through rewards or punishments. My reward, if I can follow this religion right, one day I might have my own planet with as many wives as I want. There's a religion that teaches that. It's a reward. But if I don't do things right, there's punishments. This is non-gospel, impersonal religions of the world. In the gospel that we grow up in, we are to become mature in Christ to be like Him. But in non-gospel religions, we often live with an anxiety, not knowing really what our position is. Have we met the standard or not? Am I going to have the punishments or do I get rewards? I don't know. But in mature Christianity, there isn't anxiety. There isn't insecurity. We know who we are in Christ, what He did for us. Now, and this is why Tim Keller says we need something powerful, something righteous, something loving that is beyond ourselves, beyond just a standard, a person that we're driven towards, this Savior. John Stott said it this way. I want you to listen to this quote. It's a little bit long, but it's powerful. It says, after God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? He had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposed sin. It provoked sin. It condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he is really underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. And the law must still be allowed to do its God-given duty today. One of the great faults of the contemporary church is its tendency to soft-pedal sin and judgment. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in biblical history. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. And it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. That's pretty powerful. You see what he's saying. You cannot really learn to appreciate the gospel until you know who you really are. Now, the law is shaping something in us so that when we grow up in our maturity, we can be like Christ. Now, just think about parents. Who in here that is a parent desires their child to grow up, leave the house, and then absolutely reject the values of your house that you brought them up in. Nobody wants that. Parents, Alex. Nobody wants that, right? The hope of parents is that they grow up, they leave the house. There's been some restriction, 
right? Like a law in the house of how to behave. But once they leave the house, they've got greater freedom. They can make their decisions. But hopefully the maturity is there that they still have the values in here. That is the purpose of the law. See that now? Let's think about children. Because they respond differently, don't they? As you're trying to raise them up in those values. I can recall my son, Josiah, who is now 23, does not live in our houses on his own. But when he was, I think it was sixth grade, we were at church and he came and said, Dad, these friends have invited me over. Can I go? And we knew we had some stuff that we were going to go do. He couldn't go. And I said, nope, you cannot go. Because we got, and before I could even finish the explanation, he collapsed on the ground. Dad, no, you can't. And the more times I tried to explain and say no, it just like, you know, the emotion grew within him. Right? Dad, how you sad? Why can't I go? Something like that. That's how I remember it in my mind, right? And I'm, I'm the children's pastor. I'm walking around going, holy cow, my machine. Hope nobody's looking at me. My child, right? But this is children. Children respond emotionally at times like that, right? Now, I got some teenagers in the house. Caleb's a senior. Micah's a ninth grader. And thankfully, that doesn't happen. If they say, Dad, can we go see this movie? No, they don't fall on the ground going, but Dad! They might push back in different ways, you know, less emotional, like, what, well, Dad, come on, you know. So, and this is, see, I'm saying this because I want to read to you how Tim Keller describes growth in Christian maturity. Many Christians, though, not all, testify that when they first became aware of their need for God, they went through a time of immaturity in which they became extremely religious. They diligently sought to mend their ways and do religious duties to clean up their lives. They made, now see, I think I'm going to describe some people in here. So just listen. Okay, they diligently sought to mend their ways, clean up their lives. They made tearful surrenders to God at church services. They gave their lives to Jesus. They asked him into their hearts. But so often they were only resolving to be very good and very religious, hoping that this would procure the favor and blessing of God. At this stage, they tended to have a lot of emotional ups and downs, like children. Feeling good when they made a spiritual commitment and despondent when they failed to keep a promise to God. They felt a great deal of anxiety. Now, I'm going to tell you, that described me growing up in my Christian faith. Times where I was despondent because I had made a promise to God. Times when I felt high because I was getting it right. I was getting the rules right. Times where I felt like I could go to God in prayer. He's going to really listen because I had a long period where I didn't sin. This is childish, emotional growth. This is the purpose of the law, to shape, just like living in a house where the parents say, here are the rules, and it shapes something in you. So that one day when you leave the house, the values are there and you're not emotional. You've matured. This is what our relationship with the law is. It is to help us become Christ-like. But we don't engage it in a way that somehow I'm following them, so now I feel more righteous. 
that's like the kid that falls on the ground. The kid that pushes back in emotional ways. And Paul is walking us through this. And this is why the last point I make is this in verse 26. Because he says, you're, you're no longer under the guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. His la- the last line I'm going to give you is, you're sons. Just like my son has left the house. My desire is that he would imbibe the values that we brought him up in. But we all know, right, in this room, people who grow up, that's still a challenge. That's why we need the National Day of Prayer next week. You should come. You know, fervent prayers of a righteous man avail of month. Yeah, I'm try, you know, I'm, I'm always praying for my children. But in context of what Paul is saying here, he's saying that is our relationship. You are sons. You are sons. But you're not under the guardian anymore. You are the child that has grown up and left the house now. And so your relationship with the rules now is it gives you a target to be Christ-like, but it doesn't earn you justification because it's already secure in the work of Christ. Now, we want to be like Christ, and our motivation is different. And I just, I told the first service, I said, I really resonate with this. Because every little step he's talking about, I can think about my own life. And now, later in my life, going into my 50s, pastored here 10 years, I I can see this at work in my life. To, To want to honor God, not because I want to follow rules to earn favor, but because I love Him. Because he has done so much for me, for my, for my family, the blessings that we have, mostly salvation and his grace because of the number of times that I have failed him, that it just changes you. And this is what Paul wants to drive us towards. We interact with, with the law in this way. It's just, it's, it guides me towards Christ-likeness, but never grab onto it in a way that you think it's helping you earn favor or salvation or justification. See, if we're seeking to be saved by obedience, I'll give you a couple of uh, things to look for. If you're like the teenager, not quite out of the house, you know, but you're working with the rules, you want to avoid some of them, but you'll follow some of them. That might be where you're at. You know you're trying to earn favor with obedience when you don't let the rules penetrate everywhere. You go to the rules and you say, the law, I'm looking at the law, and I'll take these eight, but these two I'm not giving in on. That's immaturity growing up. You don't realize yet who God is and what he has done for you. And you are thinking selfishly about you. That's one way you can look at that. If you are avoiding submitting to the Lord, then the reality is you are trying to work through obedience only and not relying completely on faith. You have to. To to 
say I'll take some of the rules and throw out some is a cue for that. It's a signal. But I think we are not all... We, if we say it this way, too, here's another one. If we think that we are not all that bad, then that is another cue because the idea of grace doesn't change people like that. You must really let the, let the law show you who you are to appreciate grace. So if you're a person who goes, I'm not really that bad, I keep eight of them, I keep nine of them, one of them, I'm not letting it penet- the gospel penetrate. I'm, I'm not going to submit to that. Then you, you're not, you can't really appreciate grace. So when we get to the end, this is, what, this is what we think about and how we apply it. Our motivation is different. We want to be like Christ. The law is our guide that way. If we're seeking to be saved by obedience, we're going to limit the scope of the law We try to manage it in our lives. If we think we are not all that bad, then the idea of grace will never change us as well. And this is where Paul has taken us to in his letter. He's answered the question, what is my relationship with the law today as a Christian? And the answer is, it's a guide for Christ-likeness. But our salvation is not based on that. Lord, thank you for what Paul has written we get to the end, and, and the challenge, Lord, is, is what do we think about ourselves? If we think highly of ourselves, then maybe we don't understand God's grace. We don't feel a need for the Savior. We're not that bad. And maybe we block the gospel trying to penetrate by convicting us, by speaking to us through your word, through your spirit. You need to give that up. You need to focus on living like Christ in these areas of of your life. And these are ways that we interact with the law. It guides us towards Christ-likeness. But our motivation isn't to look good before you because somehow we don't break any of them. But we look at those rules and we say, wow, we, uh, we need Christ. And Christ himself said, we could summarize it in two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. If we could focus on those, that, then we'll meet the whole law. But yet, even in that, just those two, Lord, there's so many things that compete for your love. There's so many ways that we don't treat our neighbors. We're not gracious. We get angry. We, we covet what they have. We feel superior to some. We feel inferior to others. None of this is driven by the gospel. So I pray that Paul in his letter here, the Galatians, would continue to draw us to you, that we would see our need for Christ. We would let the gospel penetrate. And we give you the glory. In Christ's name, amen. Let's finish as we worship together.
Well, as always, I always say thank you for worshiping with us, for studying God's Word. I hang around in the front if you have a question about the message or the church or the gospel or salvation. I want to encourage you to come forward and ask. If we don't see you during the week, have a blessed week. We'll see you next Sunday.